Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, good evening. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. We have the honor of finishing a summer series we started uh, way back at the beginning of the summer in the book of Galatians. Our, our mind was to go through the smaller epistles of Paul. And we started in Galatians, and we went to Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. And last time we last couple of times we were in First Thessalonians. And tonight we're gonna be we're gonna finish those epistles and go to Second Thessalonians. So let's open the word of prayer, then we will journey forth. God, thank you for this evening. We have this opportunity. I thank you for all those listening to this podcast. May they be challenged and encouraged as, as your word, Lord, is read. I thank you for my friend, Mick, Professor D himself. I thank you for his wisdom and, and for his friendship and our, and our conversation we're going to have tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's just, let's just rock. We got an entire book of the Bible to get through. So we'll start as always, and we're, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, will be 1, 2, and 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we always do, Professor D, we set the book up. So what's going on here? Uh, maybe what's different in terms of timing from 1 Thessalonians? We already got some of the, the, the place, but what are introductory issues on this book? Well, pretty much like you said, a lot of it is the same. Um, you know, obviously the only real difference would be that this one was written after, hence Second Thessalonians. So this may have been written around 51, 52 uh, AD, obviously to the same church uh, in Thessalonica. The big change perhaps would be uh, the purpose, which would in this case would be to clear up confusion about the second coming. As we saw in the previous book, he started the discussion on that. But in between that time, between first and second Thessalonians, confusions became evident. So he had to address that and to continue encouraging them in the face of uh, adversity. All right. Well, thank you, Professor D. We continue with verses three and four. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. Well, what a great greeting there. So Paul is, is, is boasting about them, but he's using specific categories or metrics. What are those metrics? What is he boasting about them regarding? All right. So for, for one thing, I think it, it should go without saying, but never boast about ourselves. Um, as far as boasting on others, you know, praise for others. Uh, the, the praise for others uh, is, is for growing in their faith and and praising them for uh, for demonstrating love towards one another. So you, you you know they and he also praised them for enduring difficulty and for staying faithful to the gospel in in the face of an increasingly hostile culture. Wow, those are all great things. Those are all things, oh listener, that you should want to grow in. And and what he what he boasts about. That, that's something you need, you need to be able to grow in. And that, that's something that I, I would love other people to be boasting about me, that, I, that I'm growing in those things. All right, our next section, and we're just you know, journeying right along. Chapter two is, 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 the, is the prize tonight, but, but we, mm -hmm. we're going to get to chapters one, two, and three. So five to 12, 
Okay. This is evidence. He's following up his boasting. This is now evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Big chunk there. No, but yeah. talking about um, some some judgment day issues here. And so make what does this section as a whole teach us about God? Well, it tells us that God is just and will one day vindicate us for what we're going through. And, and while we want everyone to receive and experience the grace of God, the, the truth of the matter is that not everyone is going to be saved. At the end of the day, Christ is going to be glorified. Okay. And so, yeah, I, I realized that kind of taking that big chunk of scripture, I, I, for our listeners' sake, I, I, I just asked Professor D what it taught us about God. I, want, I wanted him to help us understand what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about the faithful ones or the, you know, the ones who are following Christ and the ones who are not or the ungodly? And so, so Professor D answered the first question, what does this section teach about God? So now, what does this section teach us about Christians, or in his case, the, Thess the Thessalonians, but again, not written to us, but preserved for us, and we're going to go through that judgment day, too. So what does it teach us about the faithful ones? Well, you know, regarding the faithful ones, I have to kind of still hit a little bit on God, and as far as God not only being just, but, but also being gracious, and especially in verse 12, it says that as Jesus is glorified, he, he, he likes to share his glory with, with us believers, mm. you know, and obviously the, these are the ones that are going through these hard times and these afflictions because of the fact that they hold to the gospel. Okay. And, and, you know, a couple, a couple of times, yeah, he just reassures them and being, mm -hmm. being worthy of their calling. And yeah, that's, that's really, that's really great. And, that, and that's something that Paul's been talking about all through these epistles. Yes. Being worthy of the calling. So now th this big section here at the tail end of chapter one, it speaks about God regarding this judgment day. It also speaks about the, the faithful ones. What about the ones that are the, should we call them the ungodly? The let's, call, let, yeah, let's call them the ungodly. So okay. um, again, with the idea, and again, we everybody always likes to focus on God as uh, the God of love and grace and forgiveness. And they love to forget the fact that God is just, you know, and, and, and this is a big it's just as important as his grace is. In fact, his grace is, is that much more important because he is just. So the idea is, again, with the ungodly, is if you, if you haven't received his grace, you're going to face his justice. Right. And, I, I mean, this is kind of like a God who's, if, if this were a teenager, we would say you're just, you're just responding to things. Because where where, as, as they've afflicted you, they're going to be afflicted. 
Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's probably, so he's giving them this hope that, yeah, they're going through something, but one day evil's not going to have the last say. Yeah. At, at some point there's going to be this, this great hope of the judgment and this day of the Lord. And, and yeah, so, and, and Paul, he bookends this here with verse five and also verse 12 with, with prayer. And so how does, um, how does Paul bookend this with prayer for them? Well, he essentially, yeah, what he essentially says is that if you suffer with Jesus, you will be glorified with Jesus. And I think he develops this in all of his epistles in some shape, way or form. You know, it's like I've been crucified to Christ, you know, the life I live, you know, and, and he, he does this really. I mean, I, I'm like reading this and I'm like, we've, we've read this the whole summer long in some shape, way or form in all his epistles. <clears throat> we join Christ in his sufferings. We're going to join him in, in his celebration. Amen. Well, that, that's chapter one of Second Thessalonians. And I'm going to click on my screen here. You can go to Thessalonians, turn the page on your end. Second Thessalonians 2. So sorry, that was the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. Now, Second Thessalonians 2, and we're going to start with verses 1 to 4. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, pardon me, I just realized I can't see all the Bible screen. Okay, I'll read that again. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or, or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so what is Paul's great concern for them here? Kind of a crazy little section here. But yeah. this, this is the, the meat and potatoes of our lesson tonight. is going to be from chapter 2. But he starts with a great concern. What in the world's going on? So Paul wants them to be clear that Jesus has not returned yet, uh, that they did, they hadn't missed a thing. I mean, you could you could imagine how that 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 could wreak havoc. Like, what did did we miss it? And he's telling them, no, it has not happened. What would that have looked like? Would, would that have been because because we we've heard some of these things before, especially if you're you follow people who like to predict the rapture. And they get dates and they get times and seasons and they try to nail it down. It's going to happen January 4th, 1965 or whatever the dates were. I've heard one excuse, Mick, when I say, well, hey, you know, that date came and went, but it didn't happen. And I've heard some groups say, well, it did happen. It was just spiritual. And it was a spiritual rapture. It was a spiritual coming of the Lord. And, he, and, and he's going to come again in a second way, a final way, a physical one. Is that what's going on here? Could, could there have been a people back then saying some of that nonsense? I would imagine you, you always have some sort of pre-gnostics going around. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say no to that because I, I could imagine that, that that could be something that was causing confusion. Obviously, they, they believed in God. They knew Jesus was coming. They were confused about some of the details pertinent to that. So, yeah. So what great either or does Paul present here in terms of the timing? Well, I think the great either or here is you either belong to Jesus Christ and you worship him or you belong to the Antichrist referred to here as the man of lawlessness in verse three and worship him. Uh, There is no third option. Mm. 
Yeah, we might see this in the book of Revelation. You're either marked by the beast or sealed by the, the, the lamb. Or you're, you're belonging to one of two camps there. There's no fence sitting. There's no option C. Yeah, and it's... I mean, the other thing, too, is you could say you either, you, you either missed it or you didn't, as far as the second coming is concerned. And obviously, it didn't happen, so nobody missed anything. Mm. Yeah, and it's like it's not going to come until these two things are happening here. Mm -hmm. and, and so... And the first thing is, is this, well, we'll, we'll get to there. How does there, how does verse four describe um, the, you can either say the man of lawlessness, I believe is the son of perdition is also yeah. described. How does verse four describe this person? I know, and, you uh, said, I know you said antichrist as well. That yeah. would be something I'm going to stick with antichrist just because uh, I think most people are familiar with that. But again, people understand right. that this man of lawlessness is that antichrist. And right. remember the word antichrist or the name antichrist really takes full form by the time John writes his, his first epistle. So at this point, he's just referred to as the man of lawlessness, but it's the same person. So the Antichrist is going to present himself. He's going to set himself up as God. He's going to be an outright bold figure who's going to actually successfully deceive many during this time. This will be a, a time in, in human history when the Jerusalem temple is going to be in existence again. It's going to be rebuilt. And, and the guy, this guy is, is going to, to violate, violate the, the sanctity of that by claiming that he's God there. And when we really need to include verse three here as well, because he's going to, to bring, it says that he's going to bring destruction with him. The book of Revelation is, is going to build on this big time, much in much more vivid detail. Needless to say, this is not good. This is not a good time. You do not want to be there. Now, I, I know, I know, Professor D, I, I didn't. I didn't give you this question, but it, it, it is verse four, so it's not completely out of line. Uh, I know there are some Christians who look at a verse four mm -hmm. and they say, well, the Antichrist has to take his seat in the temple of God. So then they'd go with that and say, well, that, that must literally be true. And so therefore, we're waiting for a temple to be built and that we know the end's not going to come until the temple is finally rebuilt again on the temple mount and that's when we know the end is coming and i read something today that, that talked about this 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 image here and that the temple of god is used interchangeably especially in the letters of paul to refer to the church that this doesn't have to be a literal temple he's taking a seat in that this could be the antichrist is going to invade the church in general what do you think about that? Is that is that a possibility here? I, I'm going to say no, because predominantly one of the big things that we know with these end time prophecies is that the focal point is the nation of Israel. When you look at Revelation, there really is no mention of the church after the letters to the seven churches. It focuses primarily on in the world and, and especially the, the, the nation of Israel. So I think it really is tied to a literal temple, a literal physical temple. I mean, let's think about 50 years ago or 60 years ago, there was no Israel. Mm. And, and here we are today. There is an Israel. So for, for most of, Christian, of Christianity's history, you know, nearly the 2000 years there, there was a time where there wasn't even a nation of Israel. So I believe that just as there is a nation of Israel back on the map, and I'll say this too, let's say that Israel gets taken out again, I'm sure of this, God will bring them back. 
and and he will bring them back and he will bring back the temple. I, I really believe that. Okay. Well, for our listeners sake, that, that would be something if, 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 if what, if you heard either side of that, it, that something to stimulate you to further study. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to wrap my brain around how these Gentile readers are going to, are going to insert Israel there. But I do know that I'll, I'll mention this just a bit that this is, this is largely, you could tell Paul read his Daniel when, when, mm-hmm. when, when this is written down. So this is, it comes from an idea from Daniel 11. And we'll, we'll look at that briefly here in just a second. So thank you, Professor D for helping us with, with verse four there. Let's now go to five to eight. So this is, we're still talking about this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, uh, five to eight says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know, what is, and you know, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he, he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Wow. Well, Mick, what do we learn about the enemy? Well, while the end times and the Antichrist are not yet here, Satan is already setting up the stage. Uh, verse 7 says that, that the lawlessness is already at work secretly. And uh, I actually think less secretly these days. Yeah. All right. So is... So the, the enemy is, is going to be over. So, so what, what you're basically saying there is, and this is going to be um, that there's an already and a not yet sense to him. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's how this, this passage is going to play out here where, yeah, there's going to be a, a full revealing someday, but the, but, but he's already at work yeah. and Satan is already. Okay. So, so the, the, the common tension of the new Testament, especially dealing with prophecies is the, the sense of the already and the sense of the not yet. And so the, the full and final kind of thing here. And so, yes. And so that is, so like in a Daniel chapter 11, where he talks about the abomination that causes desolation, yeah. we get the, the, the initial fulfillment would be like in the Antiochus the fourth epiphanies of Rome. Like that would be the initial fulfillment. And the, right. the, 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 the final full and final fulfillment would be this antichrist figure. And yeah. so we get this already and not yet tension. So we learned about the enemy here. And so, this is a unique passage, Mick, because we learn about a restrainer. So what do we learn about this restraint and timing? What's going on there? So, so here's the thing. Even Satan doesn't know when it's all going to go down. So, you know, I believe he always has a man in the wings ready to be the Antichrist, never knowing which one of these guys in human history is going to be that Antichrist. As we saw in Job's chapters one and two, Satan can't do anything unless God gives him the green light. So God has a sovereign timetable and no one and nothing can deter God's timetable. I mean, even Satan at the end of the day is a servant to God's timetable. Because there's a lot of people, and especially there might have been some of our listeners that, that have been waiting for Second Thessalonians for this very reason. Mm-hmm. Like they want us to choose who this guy is. And from if I'm understanding what you're saying is, is that Satan may have had a, a whole litany of guys. I, I believe Satan doesn't know who the guy, when that's going to be. So he's always got to have a guy in, in, in the wings. I, I believe when World War II happened, Hitler would have been the guy, except it wasn't. You know, and throughout history, Satan's always had a man to be that guy. 
And it's not going to be, so Satan himself doesn't even know who ultimately is going to be the Antichrist. Yeah, and, and speaking of such a figure, uh, I know in, in, in the book of Revelation, a lot of people li like to try to figure out the, 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 num the numerology, the 666, and they try to figure out what's going on there. And, and using the, the, the practice of the time of Gematria to, to, to place numbers with letters, and the best one I've, I've read was that the 666 translates to like um, Nero Caesar. Hmm. And so that whoever's going to come is probably not going to literally be Nero again, because, you know, people just don't come back to life, but it's going to be someone like him. Yeah. And so it, it, that would tell me that if, if, if what you're saying is right there, Professor D, that Satan always has his that person in line, his chief lieutenant in mind, the, 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 the dragon, the, you know, the beast in the face. Yeah. He's, he's got that person that is is going to be of a certain ilk. Yeah. And whether it's one guy that's waiting or he always has someone in the bullpen, I, we don't know because we're not told. But it would make a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot more sense, Professor D, than trying to look at your newspaper or your, your websites and say, oh, who is this guy? Is it the Pope? Is it this one? Is it, is it you know, who was? Is it Hitler? We don't know. And we, we, we won't know. And, and I, I think if Paul was wanting us to know, Paul would have let us know. And I think Paul would, himself didn't know. And I think that's the same. If, if the first coming, if most people miss the first coming, you better believe they're going to miss the second coming. All it's right. Just, it's the nature of these things. And so we, we learn about the enemy here. We learn about restraint. And, and by the way, who, who, who would be the, the restrainer here? If you oh, were, yeah, God, God. Okay. Yeah, this would be, you know, God, God's one restraint. It's God's timetable. It's God's sovereignty okay. is the great restrainer. I've heard it put, maybe it's the, one of the, the tests of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not going to be Jesus because Jesus is mentioned next. I mean, it's, it could be Jesus, but what do we learn about Jesus here? All right. So um, all Jesus is going to do to destroy the Antichrist, and I love the way it says it, is breathe. Now, Revelation will develop this later as the power of his word. But the point being that Jesus doesn't even have to lift a finger uh, to, to wipe the floor with this guy. And, and, it, and it makes sense when you think about it, because all God had to do to set creation in motion was speak. He spoke it into existence. Right. And I think even the speaking was for our benefit because I think he just could have winked it or emote or thought it into existence. Yeah, that, that's a great tie into Revelation 19, um, 11 to 21. I love that chapter where the rider on the white horse, who's we, we learned is Jesus, and he's got this flaming sword coming out of his mouth. And, you know, the, the great image of a sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, it's all, all right there. And he's just defeating him. And people like to make a big deal about Armageddon. Oh, the armies of the evil one are going to line up and they're going to. And if you read, read that chapter of Revelation, they all line up. And the next thing we see is rivers of blood. It's like there's no great battle. There's yeah, they're hoping for an M80 and all they're going to get is, is a thud. Yeah, it's just no contest. I like how you put that. Jesus just breathes. He just it's almost like he's sighing with an exhale and they're defeated. It's it's done. All right. Well, that's that's five to eight. And so now we 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 keep getting groovier in our in our text here. So we nine to twelve. We're still in chapter two of Second Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one is by the is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those 
who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So what do we learn here about the work of Satan, Mick? Oh, to put it in one sentence, Satan is a fake. He's a fraud. He's a counterfeit. He, he can't do anything on his own. Um, you know, and, and I think the, the mages that, that, that went against Moses, uh, the best that Satan can do is basically a cheap knockoff of whatever God does um, and whatever God allows him to do for that matter. And, and, that, and that's all he can do. And it's like the snakes out of, the, uh, out of staff that Moses created, you know, uh, when Pharaoh's mages were, were, were able to imitate the same stunt, God's, God's snake still uh, gobbled them up. And that, he's going to do the same thing with Satan. Uh, nevertheless, Satan will get around to fooling people. And he's going to lead a lot of them to their destruction. And he's like the Pied Piper. That's what he is. And so what do we learn here about the ones that follow the work of Satan? So I guess in the Pied Piper, the rats. Yeah. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, they will be deceived towards their own destruction. Yeah. And this passage teaches us something about God and his sovereignty. And it almost reminds us of, 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 of Romans 9 and Pharaoh. There, I mean, there's something going on here. Yeah. What, what does this section teach us about God and, and what God sovereignly does? I'm going to go verse 11 here. God will cause them to be greatly deceived. Nothing can take God by surprise. Our acceptance or our rejection of the gospel and as a consequence, our eternal security, it, it, it all depends solely on God. God being sovereign means that he has no right. He has no equal. There is no plan B, as we like to say. Uh, no one, not even Satan, can outguess God. God has all history, past, present, future. He has it all worked out. I mean, he is sovereign and, and, and praise him for it. Mm. Well, seeing as we're, we're here, is there anything else you want to say about this Antichrist figure, what Paul's trying to tell them about the end times? I know we, we've, we've been looking forward to this moment in terms of we're finally getting some, some end times messages here regarding these epistles. Is there anything else you want, want to share before we move on to the rest of the second Thessalonians chapter two? Yeah, one of the things I do want to kind of say is that, you know, I think sometimes, you know, as we, we mentioned in the previous class and we'll mention here again, people sometimes get too caught up on end times prophecies and, and getting them 100% right. And I think that we shouldn't be too focused on it. At the end of the day, we need to know that God is good in whatever he says he's going to do. He says he's going to keep us from it. And I'm just saying this hypothetically. Suppose the church is there all seven years. God says he's going to protect his people. He's going to somehow or other keep us from that wrath. We trust him. However, it ultimately manifests, whether he raptures us in the beginning, whether he raptures us in the middle, or whether he raptures us at the end. That's less important than the fact that he's going to be faithful to everything he said. We are not going to be deceived because he chose us beforehand and he's going to see us through. Right. And I guess for me here, I know our, you know, if, if, if you're, some of our listeners may be in this position where they're, where they're wondering about, well, what, you know, you talk, you talk about, you know, what, what's coming next in salvation history of the coming of the Lord. Okay. So, what, what are we still waiting for before this day comes? And, and I think that one of the blessings of Second Thessalonians 2 
is that it gives us a slight roadmap. Mm. If you look at if you if you look at the tail end of verse three, because 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 Paul's is Paul's kind of hosing them down a bit, saying, "Hold on here." I know, I know everyone's saying it's come already, but it's not going to come unless two things happen. The first thing is this rebellion comes, and that's the Greek word apostasia. We get the word apostasy from that. Mm. So that uh, an apostasy must happen first. So that, that gives us this image that there's something happening from within, and Paul's writing this to a church. So it makes sense that there's going to be an apostasy of sorts away from the faith, away from Christ. Um, if this is talking to, uh, if this is talking to, to Israel, I, it would be away, away from the covenant itself, but there, there has to start with an apostasy and that rebellion comes first. And then after that, and actually it's not even after, because it could be the apostasy happening because of the work of the man of lawlessness. The, the mm. text there can mean both. So we have something happening from within. And especially most of us listening to this are Christians and we're listening in a church. So think of our culture, think of our world. You're looking for a grand apostasy where there's a very clear apostasy, not something where, you know, you prefer this political party, you prefer that. But no, no, no. This is not something where, you know what, I, I like hymns, I like worship songs, or no, 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 this is a clear rejection of Christ, a, a clear apostasy, what, what the book of Hebrews would call an apostasy, this has to call an apostasy, so that's number one, and number two, we have this Antichrist who's acting without, but then acting within, so he, he's now going, he's going to be leading others astray, but he's now influencing those and making sense of, of, of influencing those with signs and wonders, exalting himself, and so the, the casual Christian looking for the second coming of Christ and, and not really understanding the second coming of Christ might look at this guy and go, here he is. He's calling himself the Messiah. He must be him. And you, so, so if you're looking for, for the history, you're looking for what's going to happen next, and a, a grand apostasy or rebellion against Christ must occur, and the man of lawlessness or Antichrist is setting himself up in a public and dramatic way. Those are two things that... The text is very clear about those things must happen first. And so if you're, if you're worried about that, verse three is your friend. Okay. So that's, so I would just say land the plane there. If that, that's the kind of person you are wondering about those details, those two things still have to happen. They haven't happened yet. And, and so don't worry, but the, the, they're still coming. So, all right. So that that's, that's the second Thessalonians up to verse 12. Uh, can we continue? Or is there anything else you want to say about that, Mick? We good? Let's soldier on. Awesome. So we're now 13 to 16. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. So how does this section make, how does it land the plane regarding all this end times prophecy? So basically, uh, we're all saved because God chose us and not the other way around. Even as early as the Thess these Thessalonian letters, we see that Paul is masterfully developing the, the whole idea of the sovereignty of God. He called us to salvation so that, so that he, 
so that uh, he can continue using us to call others, other chosen people to salvation. Again, God has all history worked out. Amen. And what great Ephesians chapter six reminder to the Thessalonians get? You get the two words, stand firm. The enemy is out there. It was repeated again. Yep. The enemy's out there. He's real. And uh, he, he, he's out to get us like a roaring lion, as Peter says. Mm. We'll, we'll later say it. So the idea is, again, stand firm. And he's going to obviously hit on this in Ephesians. Right. So, so if, you, if you're wondering why the heck I brought in Ephesians 6, that's the famous armor of God passage. And you all know the armor pieces and what they stand for. And if you don't, go back in our podcast, listen, listen to listen to Ephesians 6. You can listen to any of these episodes we've had in this in the Pauline epistle journey. Um, during this summer, you can go back in the episode list and do that. But yeah, in Ephesians 6, he says at least three times. At least four, yeah. Firm. Above all else to stand. I mean, it's just yeah. clear as day. So, the, oh, I got to fight Satan. No, you you fight. I didn't even have to look it up when you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that, that's chapter two. So we now we're going to journey on to chapter three. So let me advance my screen here. And then this is the, the, our final chapter in our journey here. And it is not as long of a chapter, but here we go. We're going to be in uh, verses 1 to 5. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to love, to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Wow. Well, no one prays like Paul. These are great prayers. So, Professor D, in what way is this a spiritual warfare-themed prayer? Well, Paul may have developed this concept far, you know, in far more detail in, in Ephesians, but, it, but it's always been the truth. Our battle is really ultimately a spiritual one. When our earthly enemies or opponents make our lives a, a metaphorical hell, they do so under the promptings of Satan. Yeah, you know what? And a, and a point we that I missed, because you mentioned this in our last session, I believe, or if not two sessions ago, this is one of the earlier Pauline works. So yeah. there's no Ephesians 6 here. Ephesians yeah. 6. Ephesians 6 has Second Thessalonians 2 and 3 then. Yeah. Because this probably came first. And so this yeah. is... Uh, of the two Ephesians no, is probably definitely definitely so this this is an earlier work so yeah so I, I got I got my timing mixed up there so yeah but it, it is also in Ephesians 6 we weren't wrong about that but the timing now okay so so that was a spiritual warfare themed prayer because it makes sense he's just yeah. talking about the antichrist and all the works and now he's okay pray Paul consistently writes the same things the only thing that changes is how much he develops it and so what is God's work and what is their response? He talks about God's work and their response. Yeah. So God empowers and protects us in the ultimate sense. We, are, we, on the other hand, are to continue proclaiming and spreading the gospel to those would-be enemies of the cross in the hope that, that they may be saved by God's grace. They're only enemies until they're saved by God's grace. And that's the thing. That is the great hope that we have for, for the lost people right now. Amen. Amen. So we continue with 
verses 6 to 12 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you, but, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Well, so Paul transitions here to an issue. So what big issue is Paul addressing and how is it personal for him? Okay, um, so regarding these idle people that Paul's referring to, um, why was it that they were idle in, in light of the context here? And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind here. And, and I think it seems to be that they, these people were deceived and living erroneously under the, the false teachings of those who said that the day of the Lord had come already. So, so there's, this, uh, there's this falling into wrong teachings going on, I think. And obviously, Paul wants to correct this. But more, Paul also didn't like the fact that some of these people were being exploitive of the good nature of generous Christians, and he took issue with it. Um, we saw some of this in 1 Thessalonians, and, and now we're seeing more of it here. When, when Paul was there in Thessalonica, he, even though he was entitled to support from them, the Thessalonians, by, by way of setting an example, he actually opted to support himself financially for the greater good of the gospel. The gospel compels us to serve others, not to serve ourselves. So you can see how this can be a, a grading thing to Paul, who lived for the gospel, never hindering its message and not being a burden to others. And now to see others doing that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it would be very personal to me too. I, I like I like the context you gave us, Mick, because that that reminds us that this would be kind of like you might see like in a movie or maybe. Where okay, the end of the world is coming, and and so we're gonna go sell everything and have a big party, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the end doesn't come, and now you've sold everything. You're just gonna keep. What are you, you gonna keep partying? I mean, what are you gonna do? Yeah. yeah. So that 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 tells us that it's possible these guys just maybe just weren't lazy people, but maybe like you said, they were deceived that it, here here it's, everything is coming. So then why should I plant crops if I'm not yeah. gonna eat? If 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 the, if if he's gonna come back before I even eat the crops, why would I plant them? And so all of a sudden now the days and years go by and my goodness, it's been over 2000 years, my friend. So at this point, who's going to be feeding you? Yeah. And so now you're idle and you're not going to do any living. You're not going to go about your regular business because, okay, Christ is coming back. And rather than having him find you hard at work, you're going to find them just waiting for him, I guess. And so now they're taking advantage of people. So I really like that context you gave because that helps us understand Paul's not going after lazy people. These are deceived and lazy people. And if they're not going to shape up, you know, then, then we, we can't be encouraging this. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, this is almost... Because we can never affirm wrong behavior. And I mean, that's a, that's a constant in, in the Christian experience. We can never affirm what is wrong. Right. And that's, and we don't want to be enablers. And mm -hmm. we see this in the recovery world all the time. You know, we, yeah. we 
people who want to backslide and do do things. And no, we can't affirm that. And we have to stay diligent. All right. Well, that's that's six. To, oh, no. What, what, sorry. What, there's some good life principles here, too, Mick. I can't skip those because they're, they're, they're key. So Paul kind of gives us some good life principles. And so what do we learn here? So sadly, sometimes we do need to disassociate, believe it or not, from believers who aren't living as believers. Bad company corrupts good character. Also, you know, other good lessons that came out of here is don't work, don't eat, don't be a freeloader. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's if nothing else, it brings the gospel into disrepute. Mm-hmm. If, if it's like, well, I'm, I'm a great Christian. I'm a great Christian. Well, 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 where do you work? Well, I don't work. I just kind of live off everyone else. Well, that's not going to be an attractive scenario. No one's going to look at that and say, boy, I want that. I, I want that Jesus boy. Cause, cause no, nobody wants to be around that person. If, if all you're doing is, it's different. If you, you, you're, you're disabled or sick, you, you can't work. If there's some issue, you know, then, you know, we're, no one's going to say anything, but, but if you could work and you just refuse to, and all you have is your handout, that just makes Jesus look, look terrible. And so why, why would, why would anybody want your gospel that you're preaching? And I think that's a great point that you're making there, uh, big rev, because God does tell us to help out the foreigners. He tells us to help out the orphans and the widows. In other words, people who wouldn't have employment opportunities. Right. And and I know there's a number of our listeners who maybe they're facing a horrible hardship and they just some kind of sickness or their disease or that. Okay. This is not speaking to you. Some right. of you would work and some of you have been looking for work and you're unemployed and, and you don't like that you're unemployed. You would worry, but right now you can't find work. Okay. That's different than you're mm-hmm. refusing to work and, and you're just right. poking God in the eye about that. Like, you know, hold on. No, I'm going to do my own thing. No, that's not you listener. So we're, we're going after a certain people that is intentionally idle. And, and, and especially, it sounds like they might have had some theological reasons to do so. And Paul was like, no, we're not going to, number one, we're not going to drag God into this nonsense. And number two, we're not going to drag the gospel into this nonsense. And so we're, we're going to live a different way. Yeah. And so, all right. Well, 13 to 15 is our, our next chunk here. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So why would verse 13 make especially bless us today? I think most of us won't resort to doing the wrong thing, but it is so easy to get discouraged about doing the right thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. As, as, as evil never lets up, not, neither should we in, in doing good. Amen. And verse 14 speaks of, because I, I, I know I'm, I'm, I, I, do, I do some biblical counseling. You know, a lot of people who have depression, who journey with depression, depression has an evil best friend. And that, that best friend's name is shame. And shame, it just all it does is tell you that you're a bad person and that you never can have hope or anything. And shame is so destructive. It has almost no value at all. And, and yet, verse 14 gives a small little window of a quality that shame might bring. What does verse 14 tell us, Mick? Well, I'm going to preface that a little bit. Even Satan serves God. So, you know, has God knows how to leverage bad things to ultimately serve him and his sovereignty. So shame can lead to repentance. Mm. Um, I'll be honest, in spite of a lot of what 
what a lot of psychologists and even some Christian circles might say, I think there is a right and proper place for something like shame and guilt. Um, the key thing, though, is that, as with anything, it, it's also about using it right and in, in the right amount. For instance, nuclear energy could be destructive or it can or it can improve lives, you know? Radiation can be killer or it can actually save someone from cancer, you know? And I think the same thing happens with something like shame. Uh, again, the, the key thing is, is how it's used and, and, and in the right doses. So shame and guilt can be, can be, and that's my emphasis there, can be great starting points, but definitely not staying points. They're, they're, at best, they should only be a temporary thing and, and not something to be lingering in. Uh, there has to be a, a moving forward and upward from there. Right. The text is, I don't think it exactly tells us, but in Luke 15, you can imagine the prodigal son feeling all kinds of shame. Mm -hmm. yeah. look, at the, look at the decisions he's made where it's led him and look where he was, you know, knee deep in pig slop. And, and yeah. he's like, well, the story he was telling himself, because the, the text tells us that, is, hey, my, my dad's, you know, his, his slaves are eating. Maybe I can go back. So that guilt and the, whatever shame he was going through led him to repentance. And so then, then guilt and shame are appropriate. And you yeah. might say that your conscience works with that. Your conscience is, is, is a guide there to kind of, you know, like kind of like a hello McFly moment, knocking on your forehead saying, hey, knock it off. And then the, the shame that you feel, the shame cycle that we go through as sinners is can be very destructive, but it could also be very helpful if we, if we don't, we can't wallow in the shame, yeah. but we can pay attention to it. Yeah. And I think here, that's something that is, that they're doing something to this brother by, by having nothing to do with him. That's, that's that he may be ashamed so that they may provoke him so that he's not the enemy anymore. He's a brother. And yeah. so, all right, well then what about, um, that's kind of the boundary we get for church discipline, I guess, in verse 15, any, any comment on verse 15, Mick? Yeah, that again, this is done in love with the end of leading people to repentance. The whole thing is, is not to destroy someone, but to lead them towards repentance. Amen. Well, Paul's going to land a plane here in verses 16 to 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thus ends the book of 2 Thessalonians. So, Professor D, how does Paul land the plane here? Well, I, one thing that I'm going to start off is by being grateful that we have to we don't have to deal with any holy kiss business because that one's always kind of fun to work with. <laughs> I saw you spitting your drink there. <laughs> you caught me with a big drink. I had to do the spit take. Yeah. So, uh, with peace always meaning being in a right place with God and not necessarily just the absence of a literal war, Paul is saying that no matter the circumstance, we can always be in a right place with God even in the midst of our persecution, adversity, and, and difficulty. Uh, this is right, right up your alley as a counselor, isn't it? Yeah, this is all good stuff. And, and of course, his usual grace to, to you ending, uh, the very thing that makes God's peace possible in the first place. I, I, I like his, his little Emmanuel moment there. The mm. Lord be with you all, God with us. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's you know he's writing he's writing writing with his own hands. Okay, so he's he's got his scribe, who's his professional amanuensis working on it, but he signs it himself. It's okay. It's uh, 
That's great. All right. So, and I think that's key because it, this kind of goes hand in hand with the whole thing that he was talking about earlier. There were false letters being passed off as his mm. works. So right. I think that, that, that kind of, uh, you know, full circles there a little bit. Maybe he's saying there, Hey, I, th- this is, this is how the real thing happens. It's got my signature. Yeah. This is my watermark. Yeah. If you don't see this, don't be, don't be playing around. I think that's a great point from chapter one there. That's great. Yeah. Well, as we always do, we, we, we've come, we've come to the end of a, of a, of a, of a book. And so we always give our closing thoughts, usually to the chapter we just did or the lesson we just did. And then to, uh, then, then to the book. Well, the lesson was the entire book. So we're just going to do that, of course. So, so, so Professor D, your official closing thoughts as to Second Thessalonians. So with Thessalonians, <laughs> there's a mouthful there. Uh, with Second Thessalonians, I say the point that, that comes across big time is live faithfully, know what you need to know so you don't get fooled and never give up on, give, on doing the right thing. God will make everything right in the end and, and, and you can take that to the bank. Amen. And, and I have something just as succinct. It adds to yours perfectly, although we did not plan this in advance. Mine is this. Be ready. Stand firm. Trust God. There I you mean, go. I mean, the mic dropped with both of our closing thoughts right there. All right. So we're going to do something special tonight. Uh, listeners, you have been with us uh, for... Um, for this whole summer, some of you have been with us before the summer. You go back way. Some of you have been with us far too long. Yeah, so you are you are all you 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 enjoy our conversations. A number of you have said you really like our chemistry. And, and hey, Mick and I are we're good friends. We have fun. This this is this is a blessing in our week. So what I wanted to do is I added a special question to end this big summer series. And Mick, you're going to get us started, so you can you know, get, get yourself ready our top three moments from each of us from the summer series. So, so what we can comment on is anything from Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or first and second, but, uh, the entire summer series that we did is, is in place. So our top three moments from the summer series and, and Mick, you, I'll let you go first, my friend. All right. Well, here goes. Uh, and, I, and I feel bad because I'm like basically going to steal all of yours, but I'm sorry. Um, Ephesians two, four, but god mm. i mean that is such a game changer um i mean really that 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 chapter that section there i mean and you have eight nine and ten for it is by grace you have been saved through faith it's not of yourself it is the gift of god not by work so that no one can boast you know um i mean even the start of that chapter you know but you were dead in your trust i mean but but that first four but god that mm. is like that is poetry right there. Second um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, one of my favorite passages of scripture. Jesus is my hero. He was humble, but his meekness was not a weakness. And one day, and you got to love this, and I wish there was like loud orchestral music in the background or heavy metal that either will work. Every knee is going to bow and every mm-hmm. tongue is going to confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's the buildup his resurrection has been building up to, and, and, and we know how the story ends. And I think that that's just so awesome. Uh, number three, I mean, I, need I even say it? You already know it. It's Colossians 1, 15 to 20, especially where it says that Jesus is the very image of God, that by him, everything was created and is sustained by him. And in a world where people have made being a superhero, the biggest box office success of the last decade, 
it is awesome to know that Jesus is the greatest of them all and we belong to him by his choice. And I'm going to cheat by throwing a number four in there because this was just too hard to keep it down to three. And I'm going to have to cheat with a, with a number four here, which is Ephesians chapter one, verse four. God chose us after we made a mistake. No, God chose us before creation. The ultimate, we are not an afterthought in, in the grand scheme of salvation. Sorry for cheating there, but. Well, we won't, we won't consider it a cheat because maybe I'll add a fourth one too. Yeah, so I, I kind of broke mine down to a, 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 a theological moment, a, a kind of an application moment and a personal moment. The theological one, it, the greatest theology of the New Testament, I mean, that chapter, I mean, in terms of just, there's just grow, Ephesians chapter two, I invite you all, if you, if you haven't heard it, scroll back um, in, in the podcast list, listen to Ephesians two, uh, Ephesians chapter two, it grows you the heck up in your theology because you realize real quick that predestination is not a scary word. It is the most blessed of all words. It is you grow up in your theology. The more you read Ephesians 2, you realize that everything's about God's choice and not about my choice. I mean, that is huge. You need that as a Christian. In fact, most of us who are against something like a predestination, we read, we read Ephesians chapter 2 and we're like, well, gosh, I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm dead, and now God's breathed life into me. I'd say I have no hope otherwise. So that's my theological moment. I, I, and again, I absolutely love Philippians 2. I would summarize that the message of the New Testament with Jesus Christ is kurios. It's like that he is Lord. That, 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 that summarizes the New Testament. I take nothing away from Ephesians 2 or Colossians 1. High Christology. But Ephesians 2 was a grow-up moment for me, and so I really enjoyed that moment. From an application moment, especially in the counseling world I traveled in, Colossians 3 comes up a lot. This idea of taking off the old self and putting on the new self, that is, oh my goodness, that, that is half of our battle right there. Like the things about you that need to stop and the things about you that need to start in Christ. So my theological moment was in Ephesians 2, my, my, my application moment from Colossians 3, another great episode. All these have been great episodes. And my, my personal moment is... The one that was not planned, <laughs> Philemon. We we did a Philemon week. We we had we had a, a week where we had I think it was a a wana or some summer pro VBS maybe. We had something where we couldn't physically meet. And so our classes, this 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 master class theology is a it was a live class and also a podcast. So the live classes that the churches needed the space we could not meet that week. And so Professor D said, Hey hey Big Rev. How about we do a one-off? Let's do the small little book of Philemon. It, it qualifies as a Paul epistle, a small Paul epistle, but we didn't plan for it. We chose the bigger of the, of the small ones. And it was a blessing for me. I know a number of you guys, you've commented on our podcast. You, you love our back and forth and what we do. And, and usually I, Big Rev, interview Mick, Professor D, and, and then I play off what he says. And that was a special one for me because Mick gave me the questions and he interviewed me and it was a... And I, I had a blast and I got, you know, just a, and I got the questions last minute too, which made it extra challenging and extra fun. My brain really got to enjoy itself. It was, it was a great, so that personally, I love that. I've gone back and listened to that one a few times because that, that one is just fun for me. So uh, this has been a great, great series. It's been a great, great summer spent with you, oh listener and, and Mick with you as well. 
And we are we are so glad you've you've stayed on track with us all the way from the small epistles of Paul. Next, our next time we are going Old Testament. And for those of, for those of you that uh, are, are are wondering about that, we we will be going to a very very wonderful book of the Bible. We will be spending ten weeks in the book of Isaiah, and I hope you're looking forward to that because because Isaiah is pivotal for the for the Bible. Without Isaiah, there's so much we will not understand about Jesus or anything else. And so we'll spend ten weeks in Isaiah, and we may even come back before then with something before then as well. But we'll see. We're going to take a couple of weeks break, but we never do break. It seems like Mick. We always we always keep going with something. So we'll see you next time on Masterclass Theology. As always, I'm Big Rev, and I'm still Professor D. Thank you for joining us this summer. God bless. Amen. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.